Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Lord, we want to root ourselves in this truth. God, we want to to receive from it, to glean from you all that you have for us. God, I believe that not a single word of your word is here by mistake or here apart from your divine purpose. It's here with intentional uh, purpose for us to learn and to grow in Christ. And so today, God, I pray that we would not just hear your word, but that we would hear your voice speaking to us. God, that we wouldn't just be in one another's presence, but that we would be in your presence in this place. And that all that is said and done will bring you glory. God, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would do that in us and through us. For apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we open our hands to receive. God, we lay our lives down as a sacrifice, God, and we ask that you would be glorified in it all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my family had to move recently, and moving is the worst. It is absolutely the worst, especially when you have to move unexpectedly. We moved to Carpinteria. We found what we thought was the perfect place. We were there for a little over a year. And then we found out that our house that we had been renting, that we loved, that we made our home in, was being sold. And we had to scram. We had to get out. And so uh, many of you uh, have maybe tried to find housing uh, in Carpinteria um, and it's miraculous. I'll just tell you right now that if you live in Carpinteria, that is a divine appointment. You have been, you, God has gone before you. He has prepared the way and he has given you a home in the promised land. <laughs> it's hard to do on your own. And so we were very fortunate, miraculously, through friends of friends, We found a place that we could afford. We found a place that would accommodate our family. But when we signed the lease, this house that we had so much hope for, it was a shell. It was empty. It's just walls, floor and a ceiling, some appliances. The house is, is, is empty when we signed the lease. It was a blank canvas that within which we could make a life. We could make our home in there. And so over the course of a few days and many friends and lots of sweat and manual labor, we moved our furniture, we moved in boxes. And then after the next several days, we unpacked our boxes, we organized the house, and we took an empty house and we made it a home. See, a house and a home aren't the same thing. A house and a home are not the same thing. One is created by contractors. The other is created by families and friends, by residents. When we talk about building a house, we talk in terms of blueprints, foundations and framing. We can talk about wiring and plumbing, rooms and square feet. We talk about shingles and paint color. 
When we talk about the material structure, these are the things that we talk about. When we talk about a home, we talk about life, we talk about love, we talk about creating memories, we talk about hosting friends, building families. See, a house can be empty, but a home never is. A home is full of life. Now, when we read the creation story, I believe the temptation is often to read about a house, to read about a material structure within which life is stored. But when we read about the creation account in Genesis, I want to invite you to read it as the creation of a home. Not as a house, but a home. This is the way I believe the text was intended to be read. Look at the condition that the world is in before the first day of creation. Just the next verse, verse 2. It was without form and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep. This is for next week's sermon, but for now we need to recognize that there is no light to sustain life. There is no place to set your foot. It exists. God made it. It's there. It is material substance, but it is barren. It's uninhabitable. You can't live there. It's not a place for human life. But over the course of six days, God organizes the heavens and the earth. He organizes it. He moves things around. He separates water. He parts the seas. Dry land emerges. He's organizing. He's forming this world that he has made so that the residents, the intended residents, can move in and make their home there. It's about a home. Not just a place to exist but a place where life can flourish. But who are the intended residents? Who is supposed to inhabit this home? Sure, it's Adam and Eve, right? And a whole host of creatures that God made, all the animals, obviously. It's no big reveal there. It's a place for humans and animals. It's a place for the things that God has made. We live in this world. You don't need special revelation from God to know that you live in this world. You don't need me for that. You don't need scripture for that. You wake up and here you are. So why is it important that God is is writing to us about this? It's because it's a home for somebody else as well. Who else is living in this home that God made in Genesis chapter 1? In the first few chapters of Genesis, do you see anyone else living in this world? It's God. God is, is living in this world that he made. All of creation, first and foremost, is a place for God's presence. See, the text summarizes creation as the heavens and the earth. We talked about this last week, right? Heavens and earth just mean sky and land. It's it's everything above me and everything below me. It's the heavens and the earth. But to an ancient Israelite, heavens and earth have a theological significance as well. 
See, heaven was understood to be the place where God lives. The ancient people believed that their gods lived in faraway places on really high mountaintops, places where people could never get to. If you think about the horizon, can you ever actually get to the horizon, the place where heaven touches earth? No, keeps moving. And so that's where they believed their gods lived up on these mountaintops that touched the sky. But the Israelites believed that their God was the God of gods. And so their God lived higher than the other gods. He wasn't just on the mountaintops that touched the skies. He built his home in the heavens. That heaven is where God lives. We see this in Deuteronomy 26, 15, when it says, look down from your holy habitation. Look down from your house from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us. So heaven, theologically, is the place where God lives and earth then is the place where humans live. And the significant thing about this in Genesis 1 is that in Eden, in the garden, there is no distinction between God's dwelling and ours. Heaven and earth are united in Eden. God walks with his human creation in the cool of the day. God lives in this world that he has made. He made the world, not so that he could live apart from it. He made you, not so that he could live apart from you, but so that he could live with us in this world that he made. One of the most shocking things about the Bible's account of creation is the fact that God made us because he actually likes us. This isn't the story in other creation accounts. There's a very famous ancient Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish is the story of the Babylonian god Marduk. And Marduk was... Uh, at war with this rival god, Tiamat, who is identified as the, the goddess of the sea. And he kills Tiamat in this, in this crazy epic battle. He rips her in two and uses her carcass to create the skies and the ground. And then he mixes some clay with her blood and makes humans to be slaves of the gods because the gods are lazy. That's the way the ancient people believed that the world was made out of war and chaos and humans are really just a necessary evil for the gods. They're there to serve their purposes. But God's people from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of the biblical story knew that they were not made out of, from war, but that they were made out of intentional Love. Humans are not slaves, but partners with God in this world that He had made. He makes it all. He plants a beautiful garden and He says, What I made, I want you to cultivate so that the whole world looks like this place that I made for you, so that the whole world would be filled with good things, so that the whole world would be filled with my presence. And I'm going to make you in my image. Not, not 
less, than, not, not, not this demeaning servitude, but this honorable position. I'm going to make you in my image so that when this world looks at you, they remember my presence. They see my face. See, God makes this world and invites us into it because he likes us. He wants to be with us. This was his intention from the beginning to inhabit this world with us. This place was made by God and for God, but it was made to be a place of his presence with his people. This is significant because theologically, when an Israelite, an ancient Israelite, opens the biblical text and reads from the very beginning, they read that God created the heavens and the earth. He created a home for him and a home for us. And we lived there together. That God walks with his people in the garden. And the minute they read that, and the minute we hear that, we lift our eyes up and we look at the world and we say, what on earth happened? Literally, what on this earth happened? Because this does not feel like heaven and earth. This does not feel like a place where God lives with his people. See, the heaven and earth may be separated now, but they weren't intended to be. The Garden of Eden described in Genesis 2 was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. And this was the purpose for creation. It's a place for God's presence. It's a place for our presence. Now, we have a word for places like this today. A place where you can go to be in the presence of a, 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 a deity. Uh, places where, where different faiths worship different gods and they believe by going to this place, they are actually in the presence of that God. They're called temples. Temples are not just ancient things. Temples are modern things. It's the place that you go to meet with your God. They're not even just always uh, uh, religious places. Okay, I, be honest with you, I go to a temple pretty regularly between the months of April and November. It's not my temple, but it's a temple. It's called Dodger Stadium. It is a place that people go to meet with their gods, the heroes of their life story. Because when my team's winning, I'm winning. We have these places of worship that we go and we give our praise. And so temples are places where, where they're, they're erected, where people believe that there is a God living there. And if I go into that place, I can meet with that God. We see this in Israel's temple later in the story. God lives in the temple. He lives in the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant, between the wings of the cherubim. That is where the Spirit of God manifested itself in a unique way among God's people. Yes, the whole earth is filled with his glory, but he was there in the temple in a special and unique way in the midst of his people. We see that in the temple. But here we have the same thing in the Garden of Eden. It is a place where God lives and where his people are, where they can serve him and worship him and be in his presence. 
And so because of God's presence in this world, all of creation was made to be God's temple. Think about that. Why did the biblical authors say that God does not live in temples made by hands? It's not just because God is everywhere and can't be contained. It's because he made himself a temple. The heavens and the earth. The place where his creation could be in his presence forever and ever. This world was made to be a temple. You you didn't need to go anywhere to be in God's presence. He was there. Wow, how far we have fallen from the ideals and the intentions that God made for us in creation. And so if this world is a temple, what, what do humans do in temples? If God lives in the temple, what do humans do in that temple? They worship. They go to the temple to worship. And so every square inch of this earth is a sacred space where God dwells and where human beings worship. That's the intention. That's the purpose. That's the goal. When we look at this world, that's what we were intended to see. Holy ground, sacred space where God's presence is everywhere and where all we do is worshipful service to him. All of creation is a place for God's presence with God's people for God's glory. In its original design, humans were to experience God's presence and his goodness in Eden and then cultivate and expand the borders of the garden so that the whole earth might experience God's glory. This is where we live. We still live in this place. Nothing happened to this this world. It didn't go away. The fabric of this world that God made for this purpose, this is where we still are. This world is a place that God designed so that we could experience his goodness in his presence and worship him. It's holy ground. It's sacred space. All of it. All of this world is a place to worship in God's presence. And all of life is an opportunity to bring God glory. Every context, every endeavor, Everything that you do today, everything that you did yesterday, everything that you will do tomorrow, all of it was an opportunity to experience God's goodness, to experience his presence, and to offer him a worshipful sacrifice and service out of your love and gratitude for having made you and provided for you and planted you in a world full of good gifts that he has made. Everything. And this means that there is no real distinction between that which is secular and that which is sacred. This this belief that the world is neutral and that I can do sacred things in this neutral world or I can do sinful things in this neutral world is not a biblical concept. There is no division between secular and sacred because the world was not made to be neutral space. It was made to be God's temple, God's home, where we lived with him and worshipped him. 
There is no such thing as a division between sacred and secular. So think about what you did yesterday. What percentage of your day was spent doing spiritual or sacred things? Maybe you maybe you read your Bible for a little bit and that was your sacred duty. Maybe you spent some time in prayer or you, you prayed before your meals um, or you, you, you shared the gospel with a friend or you got together and, and asked for prayer and accountability from someone in your life because of something going on in, in your life. Maybe those things were, were your sacred responsibilities. But what about the other hours of the day? The other 23 hours of the day? What about when you're sleeping? Are those just secular? Doing the dishes? Doing the laundry? Watching a movie? Changing dirty diapers? Disciplining your children? Doing your homework? Or going to your job? Sacred or secular? Yeah. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be sacred. It's not just if you work for a church. It's not just my work that's sacred. Your work is an offering to the Lord. We have this tendency to distinguish between the parts of our lives that we give to Jesus and then the parts of our lives that belong to us or belong to our employer or belong to uh, our families or belong to some other institution. And so we compartmentalize our lives and we say, God, I will give you this much, no more. Everything else, that's mine. And so we create this distinction that, that was never intended to be there. And the parts of our lives that, 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 that belong to us, we feel like, you know, we can do whatever we want with. But there's not a single aspect of this world or a single aspect of your life that's not intended by God to be used for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so, whatever you, uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, all of it, was made by him and for him, including you. He made you because he likes you. He made you because he wants to spend time with you, but he made you to glorify him. Make no mistake. He made you to glorify him. This is the way the world was made. This is the intention for every human being to live in this cosmic temple with our God, worshiping and serving and glorifying him forever. Did you know that when the humans were planted in the garden, uh, they, were, they were put there to work and to keep the garden. That's the, how the ESV translates those two words, to work and to keep. Those same words in the original language are the same words used to describe what priests do in the temple. They work, they serve, and they keep, they obey. To worship and to obey, to serve and to keep. This is what priests do. And so the humans are put in the garden temple to be priests, to serve in his temple and to mediate God's presence to the rest of the world. This is what priests do. So all of it was made 
by him and for him, including you. And you've been equipped to glorify him. This is the way it was made. This was the intention for human beings. Everything you do can be done for the glory of God. Think about this. Adam and Eve were farmers. They were priest farmers. To the glory of God. It doesn't seem to be anything really sacred about farming, except for the fact that farming produces food and, and food sustains human life. And, and life cannot flourish apart from food. And so farmers are taking the raw materials of God's creation and cultivating them to provide as much flourishing for humanity as possible. Tell me that's not sacred. To provide for God's image bearers. It's incredibly sacred work. It's incredibly special work. Most of us are not farmers. But anytime you do anything to promote human flourishing, whether it's by creating a good or helping people to receive that good or providing a good service, whatever that is, if you are providing for the flourishing of humans, that is sacred work. And I bet we'd be hard-pressed to find any of us who are in a non-sinful line of employment to find someone who's not doing this. We just need to think a little bit harder about it. Maybe you're a student. You're here preparing for a future. You're investing into that future of human flourishing promotion. Maybe you are a stay-at-home mom discipling the next generation of image bearers of God and Christ followers. You're not just wiping a, a, a runny nose. You are, you are cleansing an image bearer of God, raising them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. All of it can be used for God's glory. Maybe tomorrow's your day off, right? What are you going to do tomorrow on your day off that's sacred? Rest to the glory of God. Sports and recreation are an opportunity to enjoy God in this world and the way that he made our bodies. Spending time with, with friends, food, good coffee, not bad coffee, good coffee is an opportunity to glorify God in heaven for the coffee bean and roasting techniques and whatever your preferred method of extraction is. I like a Chemex. It's all opportunities to enjoy God through the gift that he gives. If there's any part of your day that is, does not bring God glory, then you even, either need to think harder about why you're doing it or you need to repent because it might be sin. God is not glorified in sin. Most of us probably just need to be made aware of how something can be done for God's glory. I had a friend uh, once who heard a, a message similar to this and responded just in sorrow and grief because she couldn't possibly see how her job promoted flourishing, how her job could be done for God's glory. See, she was a character at Disneyland. 
And she was so overwhelmed at that time by, by her frustrations with, with that company and all of the ways that she saw that company disregarding God, that she said, I can't possibly glorify God working at this company. And I don't know what to do. And so we talked. And I said, tell me, tell me about the best part of your day. And she would talk about families. She would talk about children who would run up to her with big old smiles on their face and fathers with their children on their shoulders so that they could peer over the crowd at the parade and see them dancing through Main Street. And I would say, is that not flourishing? Is that not providing an opportunity to create memories between parents and their children, to put smiles on their kids' faces, to create memories that will bond families for a lifetime? Is that not flourishing? Then I don't know what is. Believe what you want about the company that you work for. But can you not do this every day for God's glory? See, most of us just need to see how what we do promotes the flourishing of God's creation and promotes the enjoyment of God's creation and is an opportunity to glorify God. But for some of us, there are things in our life that shouldn't be there. God is not glorified in sin. Sin is rebellion against God. And so the sin and the violence in our lives and in the world is a constant reminder that things are not as they were intended to be. The majority of the human race does not function in this way. So is Genesis naive? Is the biblical author a fool to think that this was ever or will ever be the case? Not at all. This is why we are spending our time in Genesis 1 through 11, because Genesis 1 and 2 records for us the ideal, but Genesis 3 through 11 describes what went wrong. See, in Genesis 3 through 11, there are three spiritual catastrophes. In Genesis chapter 3, the human beings that God made and planted in his, his creation temple to worship and to serve him, were tempted by the serpent, a spiritual being in his own rebellion. And instead of worshiping and serving God, the creator, they listen to the voice of and obey and serve this false God at the foot of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when they rebelled, when they sinned against God, heaven and earth, in a sense, were ripped into the humans were cast out of God's presence in the garden. And so the rest of the story is God's people trying to find their way back to Eden, back to that temple that they were made for, that they had lost. But the story gets worse. In Genesis chapter 6, there's, there's, the world is filled with violence and corruption. And the pinnacle of this corruption takes place in chapter 6 when, again, spiritual beings who are called sons of God begin to infiltrate God's creation. 
It is a mysterious text, and I can't wait to get there in Genesis chapter 6. But for now, what we need to know is these spiritual beings tried to corrupt the human population in some way that was unable to be redeemed by anything else than God sending a flood to cleanse his creation temple and to start over with Noah and his family. But Noah and his family continued to be corrupt. And in Genesis chapter 11, we see the humans gathering together in one place in this world that was made to be a temple for God. And they build a temple for themselves, the Tower of Babel, where they could ascend to heaven where God lives, but they could get there apart from God's presence. Do you see the rebellion Do you see the corruption? Do you see that time and time again, when God invites us into his presence, we turn and give our attention to something else. It's like a man getting married, building a home with his bare hands for him and his new bride. But every time he comes home, she's with another man. This is the story of Genesis 3 through 11. God just wants his human creatures to be with him and they pursue ungodly things. We pursue satisfaction in other good things in this world other than God himself. We seek to build a life. We seek to build glory, a temple for our own selves, a temple for our own status or to achieve this lifestyle that we desire. And then we relegate God to just being this minor character in our lives if we let him be there at all. God becomes a part of our story rather than the other way around. We were made to be a part of God's story. We were made for something greater. This world is something more beautiful than we could possibly imagine, but we're so content in the secular spaces of life that we don't ever lift our eyes up to see the spiritual reality. We all find ourselves living in between these ideas of secular and sacred. We all do. We find ourselves in the tension. And my concern is not just that we are living a lie, that we're living a lie that it's possible to do something that's just purely secular and, and God's not involved at all. And then, and then we can go do something else and now all of a sudden it's, it's sacred or we can think about God or, or, and now, and now it's, a, it's, it's a spiritual practice. My, my primary concern is not that we are living a lie. Rather, I'm afraid that we don't want to live any other way. I'm afraid that we don't want to see all of life as being sacred. We don't like the ideas of the idea of our life not belonging to us. We don't like the idea that our body doesn't belong to us, that our time doesn't belong to us, that our money doesn't belong to us. We don't like that idea. We don't like the idea of this world being an infinite worship gathering. Right? I already preach too long. Forever, God? In church? This is why there are many Christians who, who hear about heaven and go, I don't know if I want to be there. <laughs> if we're just floating on the clouds and playing harps and singing worship for all eternity. Even faithful, faithful believers want to clock out and kick back sometimes and, and do something that doesn't involve them thinking about God all the time. 
We don't want to live like all of our lives are sacred. And if we do want it, is it even possible? Maybe you're here and you're like, no, I want it. I want church 24-7. I want, I want this. I want everything that you're saying. I want God to be glorified in every aspect of my life, in every breath that I take, all of the songs that we sing. That's my honest prayer. That is what I want. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I want to live the holy life. I want this. But every time I come to church and it's like being invited to daydream about winning the lottery, I get my hopes up and then I wake up on Monday morning and my numbers aren't called. And I got to go back to my, my, my daily reality and the grind of my job and the daily life. I come to church and I'm, I'm, I'm invited to lift my head above the clouds, but the clouds continue to consume me Monday through Saturday. And so I'm frustrated. I'm tired of hearing about what is possible. I want it, but I don't know that it can actually happen. I want to call us all to faith today. I want to call us all to what God intends for us today. Not faith that this is possible for you to do. Okay, I'm not going to tell you here that like, I'm just going to like this, I'm going to muster you up. This church is a pep rally so that you can go and hit the ground running on Monday and everything, glory of God. Just try harder, pray harder, read more, Memorize more scripture, love better, be better, do better. That's garbage. That's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to faith in Jesus, that Jesus is God's creation temple restored. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. He is the dwelling place of humanity, both natures, God and human, indivisible, living in one man. Fully God, fully man. Distinct natures, but inseparable. He is our return to Eden. Jesus is our return to the ideals of creation. Jesus is the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of humanity. Heaven and earth come together. His body is the new temple. This is why Jesus could say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. He wasn't talking about some physical structure in Israel. He was talking about his body. He is where God lives. He is where humanity can be in the presence of God. Wherever Jesus set his foot became holy ground. Think of this. Even a brutal, bloody, disgusting cross that was devised for human torture. Not human flourishing, human torture. Once Jesus was nailed to it, became a beacon of hope. How backwards is that? How much restoration and redemption, how much beauty and power of God is necessary to turn a cross into a sign of hope? To turn one man's death into a multitude salvation? No one but Jesus Christ, so that all who look upon Jesus and see God's presence in him 
Everyone who receives God in Christ receives eternal life. Since Genesis 3, people have been trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, and in Christ, we can. Jesus came into this world to manifest the presence and the power of God. And so through faith, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lives in you. So if God's in you, who's the temple? We are. We are. Temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you believe you are a member of the body of Christ and wherever you set your foot, God's presence goes with you, whether at home or at work or at school or in church. All creation is a sacred space because you have been made holy. You have been made holy. Nothing is secular to the person who is in Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor, and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense, and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps in the bosom of God, and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. If you are a Christian, meaning you have put your faith in Jesus as God's presence in this world and you have trusted in him that your sins have been forgiven, then all of life is sacred. All that you do is an opportunity for worship. Anything that is not sacred is not secular. It's rebellion. It's rebellion. But Jesus has cleansed your sin. He covers you with his righteousness. And God's spirit is in us. And that presence is our hope that one day we will be free from sin and this world will be free from evil. Though we long for heaven and earth to be reunited, we have hope, we have a promise that it is only a matter of time because as it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, has the first verse of the Bible in mind. When it says this in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, whose name is Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. This world was made. Oh, don't let me interrupt you. That's fine. You can <laughs> 
This world was made by God, for God, for us to dwell in his presence. Things have gone horribly wrong, but it will not always be the case. We will one day again live in the new heavens and the new earth. What was in the beginning shall be in the end. And so we today, we get to receive our life and we get to live in this world as a gift from God. You're invited to live in his presence for his glory. You're not always going to get it right, but because his grace covers your sin, God still looks at you and he sees you blameless. He sees you holy. He sees you righteous. And nothing will stop him from spending eternity with the one that he loves. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you have never left us nor forsaken us, nor shall you ever. We thank you, God, that you, though we are are broken and sinful, God, you have given us your spirit, that you reside and have made your home in us. God, stir our hearts to believe these truths and to rejoice in your presence, to not not squander your presence, but to give you thanks for you are here. God, you are here in this place. You are here within these walls. Not because there is anything special about this building, but because the body of Christ is here and you are in us and with us. And so God, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your presence by your spirit. Lord, fill us with your love, fill us with your grace and your peace and fill us with your power. God, to reclaim Carpinteria to be a temple for God's glory. Your presence is the most beautiful thing this city has to offer. And so God, I pray whether we are in this building or outside of these walls, what this world knows of us would be that we are celebrating you, that we delight in you, that we believe and have received the good news and that we want to see people cherishing and treasuring Jesus because you are worthy. Stir up in us now, and not only now, but always, to live our lives for your glory and your presence forever and ever. Amen.